My name is Brian Kinsey, and I'm the pastor of First Pentecostal Church in Pensacola. I'm delighted that you're listening to this message, and I hope it blesses your life. If you'd like to submit a prayer request, or if you're interested in a personal Bible study, you can call us at 850-477-1100, or send us an email at firstpent at firstpent.org. We hope you enjoy this message. presence of God this morning in this place. Can we one more time, we're going to do this again, but can we just give God praise together? How wonderful it is to worship the Lord and magnify him together. Hallelujah. Lord, we praise you today. We bless your name, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise God. What a privilege it is today to have with us, brother and sister Welch, They are no strangers to First Pentecostal Church. Brother Welch, come and deliver that word you have this morning. We love you and appreciate you. God bless you. Praise God, everyone. We greet you in the name of the Lord. We honor your dear pastor and wife, Sister Kenzie. So good to see you on the front and Believing God for continued strength for pastor, and we love them so dearly, and you know exactly how we feel about Kenzie family and all the ministry that are here. Brother Strobel, honor you. God bless you. Thank you for also your work in the ministry, but also the service to our country, all of you who serve and have lost someone who have served our great nation. And... uh, As Abraham Lincoln once said, they gave the last full measure of devotion. And so we thank God for each one. It's an honor to stand here again in this pulpit to address you. And my dear wife is here as well, our son Bentley. And we're going to believe God for a great day in the Lord. How many are glad to be back in the sanctuary, having church, worshiping? The one true Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise God. Be looking at Genesis chapter 32 this morning. Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32 and verse number 24. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the break of day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, He touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince thou hast power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it thou hast asked after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved." Father, bless your people, the great host, 
Pensacola, Florida. God, bless this tremendous church family. God, I pray over them. God, loose all the blessings of heaven, God. Increase faith, suppress doubt, save, heal, and deliver your people. In the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone say amen. God bless you. Please be seated. Thank you for standing to honor the word of the Lord this morning. Reading this week from Craig Simon's book, World War II at Sea. At the beginning of World War II, the Germans realized that if Britain could be defeated, it would be because they stopped her shipping ability. The home islands of Great Britain produced only about half of the food necessary to feed its population. From the start, they realized that Britain could be starved into surrender if the U-boats could sink Allied ships faster than they could be replaced by new construction. It did not matter if the ships were inbound, filled with vital war materials from the United States, or outbound, carrying mostly ballast. The key was to sink ships. The submarines, or the U-boats, were considered the most terrifying weapon on the open sea at that time. They implemented a new tactical protocol for the U-boats, one that had, they had been thinking about for a long time. Rather than send the U-boats out one by one to conduct solitary patrols, they planned to coordinate them in operational groups, eventually called wolf packs. A wolf pack could potentially sink 10 to 15 ships, even destroy an entire convoy altogether. In addition to the U-boats, the surface raiders, there was a third danger to British trade from what was called auxiliary cruisers. These were former merchant ships that had been modified to be used as raiders by adding a suite of naval guns and increasing the size of their fuel tanks for extended cruising. The naval guns were hidden behind false bulkheads and what appeared to be crates of deck cargo and they went to sea disguised as innocent neutrals, dropping their disguise at the last moment to open fire on British and Allied ships. They sent out dozens of these type ships in the fall of 1940. And between May and November, they sank or captured more than 80 British and Allied ships, displacing more than a half a million tons, ship for ship, they proved to be more destructive to Allied trade than the U-boats. Steaming it, the first of them went to sea in early spring. It was called the Atlantis, formerly the cargo ship Goldenfells, followed the route used by Admiral Scheer and other surface raiders through the Denmark Strait. He headed straight for the Cape of Good Hope, Steaming at 10 knots to save fuel, the Atlantis underwent several chameleon-like transformations during the journey. Her mast and her stacks could be raised and lowered. The crew used wood framing, canvas, sheeting, and paint to reconfigure her silhouette and her appearance on the sea. 
During her passage through the North Sea, she was the Norwegian freighter Newt Nelson. As she traversed the route above Scotland toward Greenland, she became the Russian naval auxiliary Kim. And as she traversed and came through the South Atlantic, she became the Japanese Kasi Maru. And a few weeks later, in the Indian Ocean, she adopted the configuration and the color scheme of the Dutch freighter Abakirk. These paragraphs leaped out at me when I understood the chameleon-like characteristic of those merchant ships during World War II. I thought the U-boat, the submarine, was the most treacherous, but finding out that there was a worse culprit, there was a much more deceptive enemy, and that was those who pretended to be something and were not. They pretended to be a neutral. They pretended to be a friend. But finally, when they got close to their target, they dropped their disguise and they opened fire at point-blank range and destroyed those ships. And the writer said they became more destructive than the U-boats that were feared among all sailors. It was those merchant ships uh, that were disguised uh, as friends uh, who were the worst enemy they ever faced. The enemy always tries to isolate. They said if we can keep supplies from coming to the British Isles. We can starve them out. I want to talk to you about an enemy that's tried to starve some people out. He's tried to isolate you. He's tried to keep you uh, suppressed. Uh, you haven't seen uh, your church family in a while. Uh, you haven't seen uh, your spiritual leaders in a little while. And, and I want to tell you, the enemy's tried to wreak havoc on the church uh, of the living God uh, by trying to starve you out. But somebody said, my substance comes from the Lord. Uh, I want to tell you, daily he loaded me with provisions. The enemy thought he had me starved out, but I want to tell you, I'm thankful to be in the house of God, but oh, I get my supplies direct from heaven. And like the prophet of old, if the ravens have to come and feed me bread, I'm going to be sustained. God is my refuge and my fortress. The enemy's trying to kill, steal, and to destroy. But oh, I'm preaching to a church. You haven't lost faith. Your faith has been strengthened. I'm preaching to a church. You haven't lost hope, but your hope has been renewed. And now I feel the momentum of the Holy Ghost. We're in the sanctuary of the Most High God. Come on now it's not empty but it's filled with people who are committed to their God we're not going to be defeated but oh no victory is here come on this is a celebration of hope this is a celebration of deliverance God has seen me through the dark hours and the sun is rising on the horizon and the church of God is stronger and more powerful than we've ever been before 2 Corinthians said, No wonder that Satan himself has disguised himself as an angel of light. The enemy's tactics are thousands of years old. Much like in the time in England, when Shakespeare began to present his dramas, 
They could only afford a certain limited number of actors. And so the actor would leave the stage and he would change costumes only to return as a different character. You know your enemy. He has no new tactic. He just changes costumes once in a while. He's the same old culprit. I thought about the ship that had painted herself over five times on one voyage, renamed herself. It's the same old jalopy with a new paint job. The devil has no new tricks. But he's put a new surface on the old tactics. Kill, steal, and to destroy. Isolation, intimidation, fear tactics. It's just a new paint job, folks. We are not ignorant of his devices, according to the New Testament. I'm preaching this morning. It's time to get a hold of God. It's time to get a hold of God. Genesis 32, I began to read about Jacob wrestling with a man. We know that years before, mentioned in Genesis 27, that Abraham called for his oldest son Esau, but Jacob deceived Abraham and came in and received the blessing at the advice of his mother. Esau hated Jacob for this and for several reasons, according to Genesis 27 and 41. Rebekah finally says to Jacob, you really need to leave the house. She says, why don't you go away for a while? When things cool off and your brother's temper dies out, you can come back home. Just go away for a few days is what she said in verse 44. Jacob went on his journey to the house of Laban, his uncle. He meets his daughters. He works for his two daughters. And it wasn't just a few days, but the Bible says it was over 20 years that he had to avoid the hostile environment at home. Esau hated Jacob, and it was not something that just lasted a day or two, but that hatred only grew over time. Genesis 32, we come into the narrative where Jacob is wrestling with the angel. You know that Jacob meant supplanter. It meant deceiver. And when Jacob began to wrestle with the man that night uh, until the breaking of day, the Bible said it was not just a, a momentary struggle, but this is symbolic of our prayer lives. And the Bible says that Jacob grabbed a hold of this man and began to prevail even. For the Bible says that the man saw that he could not prevail. Therefore, he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh. At first, Jacob had a hold of this man, and he wrestled with him until the break of day. And finally, the man touches the hollow of Jacob's thigh. Later, we find out in Hosea 12 and 4 that the man was actually an angel sent from God. And finally, after he saw that he could not prevail against Jacob with natural strength in a supernatural way, he touches the hollow of Jacob's thigh, and it's now out of joint. And Jacob, who was 
uh, obviously strong and robust and had a hold of this man uh, in this struggle uh, is smitten by this angel in the hollow of his thigh and he buckles uh, under the pressure and the weight of his body. At first he prevails, but once he is smitten in the strength, in the strong part of the core of his body, he buckles, but he does not let go of the man. He's got a hold of something, and he's saying, I'm not going to let go. I know what I need, and I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And the angel says, let go of me, son, for the day breaks. I didn't plan on staying past the daybreak. I've got to go. He says, said, let me go. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go. He said, I know what I got a hold of, and this is good, and this is what I need. There's a determination. There's a tenacity that's coming out in Jacob's character at this moment. And we see it revealed on the pages of the Old Testament. Jacob's got a hold of God. He's had some difficult circumstances in the back in, in the past. His character wasn't what it should be. He was a supplanter. He was the deceiver. But oh, I want to tell you, he's finally gotten to a place in his life. There are circumstances arising in Jacob's life, and he says, I've got to get a hold of God. What you may not remember is that God had spoken to Jacob after 20 years, and he said, I want you to go back home. Jacob said, well, that sounds easy enough, but do you remember Esau? Esau has been planning to kill me for 20 years. Uh, he's imagined every, impos every possible way to kill me. Esau has increased with goods and products and family members and servants, uh, and he would easily be able to overtake me. And Jacob says, God, have you forgotten about Esau? God says, no, I remember him. But I still want you to go home. Jacob begins his journey into the fire. And the night before he is to encounter Esau, the Bible says he has a moment where he wrestles with this man. No doubt Jacob is thinking about tomorrow. I've got a court date. I've got a doctor's appointment scheduled. He said, there's something happening tomorrow, and I know that it's going to be dreadful. And he said, I've got to get a hold of God. And I want to tell you this morning, I'm preaching to somebody who is facing circumstances, and that you know that it will mean sure destruction unless you get a hold of God, and you don't let him go. You have got to get a hold of God this Sunday morning. I want to tell you, we've all got on our, our Sunday best. We're greeting each other with a smile. But this week, it's inevitable. Somebody is facing dire circumstances, and you have got to get a hold of God. It's vitally important that you get a hold of God. This service is not business as usual. This is not another casual day. But this is a moment where you have an opportunity to get a hold of God. I want to tell you, it's up to you. Some of you are... So far back, I, I can't even make out who you are, but God knows who you are. Come on, somebody are in the balcony, but God knows you're here this morning. You're spaced out for social distancing, social distancing, and that's all right. But make sure you don't miss the opportunity to get a hold of God. 
The church is more than just a fellowship group. This is a moment for you to get a hold of God. This is a place for you to get a hold of the Savior. It wasn't just a man. Hosea said it was an angel. Finally, after Jacob wrestles with this being all night, the angel says, you're no longer Jacob. They've got you classified by the wrong name. He said, now you are Israel, a prince with God, for you have prevailed with God and with men. When you come to the house of God, it's to get an identity change. Whether you like it or not, people classify you according to your occupation. They classify you according to your characteristics and your traits. They think of you as honest. They think of you as greedy. They think of you as prayerful. They think of you as calm or hostile or whatever the traits that you possess. They think of you as tall or short or young or old. But I want to tell you, Jacob finally said, I'm to the point in my life I refuse to be classified by how tall I am or how much I weigh or how old I am or for being a carpenter or a doctor or a lawyer. He said, that's fine, but I'm to a place right now and I'm in a circumstance that I've got to get a hold of God lest I perish and I want to tell you when you finally get to that place everything about your identity begins to change come on now I've been a carpenter before I've been a laborer before come on now I've been a professional but oh today I've got to have a new name I've got to have an identity change I've got to get a hold of God I once was a sinner but I've got to be transformed into a saint of God hallelujah if you're planning on going to heaven, you've got to have an identity change. There's got to be an experience in your life where everything changes. Say, well, my family's religious. We've always been religious. I'm all right. I want to tell you, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, and some trust in theologies and dead religions. But I want to tell you, you've got to have an experience with the Almighty God for yourself. It wasn't enough that your parents or your relatives had it. But, oh, God, I've got to have an identity change. Jacob, it's the darkest hour of the night, but you have got to get a hold of God. Come on, somebody, and get a hold of the Lord. Lift up your hands and say, God, I got to touch you today. This is more than casual church. I've got to get a hold of God. I've got to get a hold of God. Finally, Jacob says, it wasn't just a man. It wasn't an angel. But he said, this night I saw God face to face. I appreciate good influences in my life. I'm excited about angelic visitations. But finally, God, let me see you. Open the eyes of my heart. Let me see in the spirit. Praise God.
I believe when you pray, you ought to just go on into intercession. I believe when you pray, it ought to be with utterances. It cannot be understood. I believe when you pray, you shouldn't just say, now I lay me down to sleep. But you ought to go on into speaking in other tongues. Because I believe that's when the transformation happens. Come on, this is a New Testament experience. Come on, Acts chapter 2 told us about it. When you really want to be transformed, come on, you're going to pray until something happens. It's not just a bed time prayer. It's not just two minutes and get up, but it's, come on, Jacob finally said, I'm in a spot that I've got to pray all night. I'm in a place that I've got to pray until something happens. I've got to pray until the foundations shake. Oh, I'm preaching to people that know how to pray in Pensacola. Come on, I'm preaching to a church. Come on, with a heritage of prayer, with a heritage of miracles. You know about it. I'm asking you to do it again. I'm asking you to pray this morning. I'm asking you to get a hold of God. We live in desperate times. We need to get a hold of God. Many years ago, in my hometown, a notable man in our community served a naval surface ship, World War II. For four years, he sailed the hostile seas. And you can imagine, during those times, much uncertainty was there. He said, I learned to rely on my comrades. And I learned to rely on my equipment. He said, I was issued a life vest on that ship. And he said, you can imagine that I clung to that life vest every day. It was one particular life vest or one exactly like it that he always had, either on or by his side. For four years, he sailed on that ship, and he took comfort in that safety equipment. But he said, finally, when our ship docked on the coast of California and the war was over, and I walked down the gangplank for the last time, I realized that I had been holding on to that life preserver for four years. He said, in one last moment of symbolic gesture, as I walked down the gangplank, I tossed it over the railing. And I said to my buddy, I'll never wear that again. And he said, when I tossed it overboard, I looked back. And to my amazement, what I had clung to for safety for four years sank to the bottom like a rock. I want to tell you, folks, I meet people all over who hold to things that they think will deliver them. I know people who have diligently stored up, invested in the stock market, only to see it vanish before their very eyes. Savings accounts, retirement funds, gone instantly. But that was my life preserver. And we find out those things will let you down. I know people who have had relationships 
And they built their entire lives on those relationships, even with a spouse. But I want to tell you, in a moment, those relationships can vanish, either by death or betrayal. And I want to tell you, we hold to things that will let us down in the end. I've seen people build their identities on their occupations and their skills only to be incapacitated, not able to function, and realize that was not enough to save me. I'm preaching to a church. I'm preaching to a community. People have thought theologies and creeds would help them only to realize that unless I'm baptized in Jesus' name, unless I'm filled with the Holy Ghost, come on, I will sink in despair. I found out it's only the Holy Ghost that's going to sustain me. When my friends aren't there, it's the Holy Ghost. When my occupation won't give me the identity I need, it's the Holy Ghost. Come on now. I'm preaching. you got to get a hold of God. Stop holding to something that's going to let you down. If you haven't been filled with the Holy Ghost, get a hold of God. There's no better place. There's no better time. This is the hour. This is your moment. Get a hold of God unless you sink in despair. Get a hold of God unless you perish in the depths. See, I thought I had it under control, preacher, but oh, these last two months have showed me again. All, the only thing I really have is my relationship with God. The only thing I really have is my relationship with God. Come on and lift your hands with me right now. Father, I pray over every individual who hears my voice. I rebuke the enemy that tries to deceive and disguise himself as a thousand friendly foes. But God, I pray now in the name of Jesus that people would be wise enough to see the tactics of the enemy. He's trying to isolate this great people. He's trying to keep people from the house of God for two months. He's tried to steal and destroy us. But God, I'm praying right now in the under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, God, that you would lose this people. Come on, there's somebody who's committed right now in the back of the room to get a hold of God. Come on, if you're going to get a hold of God, you may have to do it all by yourself. I might not be able to lay hands on you today, but come on now. Hear the word of God. Get a hold of him right now. Get a hold of God like Jacob did. Don't let him go until you get a new name. Don't let him go until you get a new identity. Come on, somebody. You've been praying praying for 20 seconds. Come on and press yourself to a real touch of the Holy Ghost right now. Come on, it's happening. It's happening right now. There should be a voice lifted up in this sanctuary. There should be a voice lifted up in this sanctuary. Come on, mama, and pray. Come on, daddy, and pray with a loud voice right now all over this sanctuary. Come on, did you come to have a move of God? Come on, that's about half volume. Come on and lift your voice right now. Come on and lift your voice to heaven right now.
Hey, I'm preaching to the patriarchs. I'm preaching to people that know what old-fashioned revival is about. Come on and pray right now. Come on and pray right now. God, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ for an outbreak of the Holy Ghost in this sanctuary. Come on, I'm preaching to somebody that came determined to get a hold of God. Come on right now. You got a hold of the angel, but don't let him go right now. Come on now. You're seeing God face to face, but don't let him go. There's something breaking. There's something shaking right now. In the name of Jesus, God, let your prophetic word, God, be performed in this house. God, you've told us before. God, we received it. God, we refuse to let our word die right now in the name of Jesus. Come on, Jacob, and get a hold of God. Come on, Jacob, and get a hold of God. If these were the only five minutes you had to get a hold of God, I wonder what would happen. If these five minutes were all that really mattered, I wonder how we would pray. Come on now. God sent an evangelist to speak to your heart. Come on and get a hold of him. Nothing else really matters unless you get a hold of God. Nothing else really matters unless you get a hold of God. Come on and give Jesus an ovation one more time. God, we honor you. Thank you for what we feel. Thank you for your presence. Glory to God. Praise God, everyone. What a privilege and a joy to be back with you tonight. Pensacola, we honor and respect greatly Pastor Sister Kenzie, and we are extremely thrilled that he's able to be back tonight. And the strength of the Lord is increasing, healing him. And uh, thank God for that. All of you, good to see you returning to the house of the Lord. A great crowd on a Wednesday night. The presence of the Lord is already working. And we're going to see what the Lord will do. We'll be looking at Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 tonight. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. We give honor to all the ministry. Brother Strobel, you and your dear wife, Staffords, our friend, Evangelist, Brother Josh Herring, what a privilege to be in service with you and uh, great man of God. And uh, if you would help me in the altar, I'd be greatly appreciative. A secondary appeal and give some instruction. Amen. Together, we're going to do our best to reach someone's heart tonight. Every word is intentional. I believe the Lord has spoken. And let's see what the Lord will do. Daniel chapter 12. And verse 1, if you have that, say amen. Daniel chapter 12. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that, that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered. Every one shall be every one that shall be found written in the book. Father, thank you for your word that's so powerful. Allow me to minister God effectively. Go beyond my natural ability. Let your anointing touch the hearts of individuals here tonight. I pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, I bind every spirit of doubt. I lose faith in the abundance and the salvation of the Lord in Jesus' name. And everyone say amen. God bless you. Please be seated. 
During the mid-1980s, the crime rate in New York City had spiked to an all-time high. The subway system revealed the breakdown in the organizational structure. Every subway car had graffiti on the inside and the outside. Very little air conditioning in the summer and no heat in the winter. With a lack of security guards at the turnstiles, many criminals just leaped over the gate to ride the subway freely. Finally, people began to break through the turnstiles by pushing extremely hard, allowing great masses of people to go through the gate without purchasing a ticket. Finally, after some time, even the honest people saw what was happening and stopped buying tickets. They knew they could walk straight through the gate. Even if there was a security guard on duty, they didn't care enough to stop individuals only for the small amount of the fare for a ticket. And surely you wouldn't be arrested for such a small amount. The final result was over 170,000 people daily were riding the subway with no ticket. Amazing to me how a system can be so broken. But I find that many people in religious circles succumb to the same low level of thinking. There's always a loophole. There's always a way for me to have a free meal. There's always a free ticket. I want to remind you tonight, the Bible tells us that our names have to be written in the Lamb's book of life to make it to heaven. The Bible tells us that our names have to be written in the Lamb's book of life. I'm preaching tonight from the subject, the Lamb's book of life. Daniel chapter 12, we know is directly speaking of the nation of Israel, but I believe we can uh, effectively glean from the fact that if our names are written, we will uh, avoid certain troubles that are coming on humanity in this last hour. I want my name to be written in the Lamb's book of life. I want my family's names to be written in the Lamb's book of life. We're here tonight not just for fellowship, but to make sure that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Most of you have been around long enough to know it. You know assuredly that when you're baptized in Jesus' name, when you're filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, uh, completing the plan of salvation in Acts chapter 2, uh, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's not just signing the church card, although that's good. It's not just shaking the pastor's hand and greeting him, though that's uh, a wonderful thing to do. But your name has to be written in the Lamb's book of life. Between 1892 and 1954, more than 12 million people immigrated to the United States passing through Ellis Island. Many of you have been to that iconic place, the golden door to freedom. 12 million people enjoyed the ability to migrate from other nations, often riding ships for days and weeks months, terrible circumstances, often primitive conditions in the hull of the ship, many succumbing to illnesses and starvation along the way. And oh, what a joy to finally 
get to the island and come through what was called the golden door to freedom and to be a part of the United States of America. I know immigration is a hot point in politics, but I can imagine coming from anywhere else in the world, it would have to seem like arriving at heaven to come into the harbor of New York City. And oh, the words that are inscribed on the statue. Give me your poor, those downhardened, those who are broken, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, all those who are striving for freedom. I stand here with the lamp beside the golden door. What it would be like to hear those words and to know that I was welcome into such a place. But what many people don't know is over 120,000 people were turned away during that half-century period. Can you imagine riding a ship for weeks and months enduring starvation, primitive conditions, and sickness, uh, finally arriving here only to be turned away because you have some uh, uh, contagious disease or because some legal document is not prepared. Oh, what terror they felt in their hearts to know that I have floated along the stormy seas of life. I have hoped for so long for deliverance only to reach the final checkpoint and to be turned away. I want to tell you, folks, there are people who are willing to be called Pentecostal. There are many people willing to be called Christian and to be counted with us in this society. And they're willing to float along with the church to the, to the men's barbecue. And they're willing to come along to every social event. And they're willing to trail along with their family, even to revival once in a while. But I want to tell you, there's going to be a final checkpoint at Ellis Island. And if you're name is not written in that book friend you're going to be sadly disappointed come on now we love you we care for you but most of all we want to make sure that your name is written in the lamb's book of life come on now i want to make sure that you're in the book on that final day I'm glad you've got a bumper sticker. I'm glad you got the T-shirt. But what I want to know is, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Some of you have heard my testimony. As a teenager, I was not in the church. My family did not grow up in the church. An unstable home in my teen years. My mother and dad were split up on the verge of divorce. Their finances were in bankruptcy. It was not that I was not intelligent, but circumstances and lack of initiative at that time showed up on my report cards. Multiple absences. I remember coming to the final days to graduation. 
And in my hometown, when you graduate, they list all the graduates in the newspaper. Sadly, I had to wait until the newspaper was printed to make sure that I would be graduating in that final class. But on the bright side, I married the valedictorian. <laughs> and we walked together down the long aisle on the football stadium. But oh, I remember the uncertainty that I felt as I read the newspaper. Is my name in that long list of graduates? Sadly, many people live spiritually with that same uncertainty. It's not that they're not smart, not that they're not intelligent, but they have failed to make certain that their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. They hope it's there. It might have even been there at one time, but they're really not sure that it's still there. I'm preaching tonight, make sure your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Come on, it's more stressful to live uncertain than it is to give it all you got and know for a certainty. Come on now. We're not wondering if our name's in there. We know it's in there. Hallelujah. We know that our name is written. Come on, man. Go ahead and live for God 100%. It's too stressful to try to live for God at 80% or 90% or even 95%. Come on and give it all you got. For the hour is late and the day is far spent. The kingdom of God is at hand. If you're going to live for God, go ahead and do it right now. If the signs of the time are not evident to you, come on, you're blind. You're blind. Open your eyes and see that the Lord is soon at hand. Make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Come on and clap your hands if you believe what this preacher's saying tonight. Come on, you got to make sure. You got to make sure. Revelation 20 and 14 said, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, for this is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's not Brother Welch. That's not Pastor Kinsey. That's, that's the Word of God. And I know we live in a politically correct society, and I know it's not popular to say it, but come on, your name has to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's not a loophole. There's not a way around it. Come on, you're not going to ride this train without a ticket. I don't care if 170,000 people are claiming to. Come on, you got to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Come on, because that final checkpoint at Ellis Island is going to be the most dreadful day of your life. Come on, you're expecting to enter in the golden door but you're going to be turned around at the gate and sent home oh God that's the scripture that's the word of God and it's plain and it's clear and there is a prerequisite to make it to heaven and is your name has to be in the Lamb's book of life Revelation 21 and 27 says, And there shall in no wise enter in anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Psalm 69 and 28 says that our names could be blotted out of the book of the living. Exodus 32 and 33, Moses says, is your name blotted out of that book? 
It's possible to have your name blotted out even if it had been there previously. Come on, I believe that the Lord is speaking to somebody. Don't, don't be naive to think that, that eternal security is a doctrine that you can depend on. It's like the life preserver that will sink like a rock to the bottom of the ocean. Come on now, you got to be right with God. Come on, your heart has to be pure. You have to be baptized in Jesus' name. I know. Come on now. Until you enter that gate, you've got to keep striving. You've got to keep working out your salvation. You've got to keep running with patience the race that is set before you. Come on. You've got to. Come on. You gotta endure hardness as a good soldier. Everything in that book is talking about reaching. It never says sit on your hands and give up and coast into heaven. If you're gonna make it to heaven, it's because you gave it all you had. Come on now, love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. It's gonna take every ounce of energy you've got. It's I'm just a mild personality. Come on now. Get honest with God. You're going to have to get desperate for it. I pray with a lot of people to receive the Holy Ghost. And the ones that receive it are the ones that are committed to receiving it. If you're waiting on maybe it might happen, it could happen tonight, it won't happen. But it always happens to those who say, I will receive the Holy Ghost tonight. It always happens to those who say, I'm not leaving the altar until I'm praying in other tongues. Come on now. When you give it 100%, that's when it always happens. Say, well, I've been seeking God for six months. You may be at 99.9, but I want to tell you, when you give it everything you got, when you no longer are concerned about who's watching with tears rolling down your cheeks, with your tie crooked and your hair messed up, come on. God has promised that he would give it to whosoever will, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Matthew 22 and Luke 14 says there's a banquet prepared, but many will make excuse. And some will say, I realize that the Lord has prepared a feast. But the first one said, I bought some property and I've got to go look at it, check on it. And the second one said, I bought a team of oxen and I've got to go prove them. And the third one said, I've married a wife. Come on, Brother Dennis, say hallelujah. But the whole portion of Scripture is telling us nothing is more important than making sure that you're at that final banquet that the Lord has paired for all of his people. I read last week in David Jeremiah's book about Ruth Ann Metzgar, professional singer. She was invited to sing in a very upscale wedding in Seattle, Washington. She was especially thrilled that the banquet would be held in the tallest building in Seattle on the top two floors. She and her husband went to the wedding. She sang a beautiful song. They drove over to the reception. They went to the top of the tallest building. And when the elevator opened, they saw the host decked out in a black tuxedo. And they walked up to the reception's desk. And he said, what is your name? And they told them their name. 
And he opened a large book, and he searched for their name. He asked again, what is your name, and how do you spell it? They told him how to spell their name. He closed the book, and he said, ma'am, sir, I'm sorry, but you cannot attend this banquet. As they looked over the shoulder of the host, they could see the most exquisite banquet that they had ever been invited to. Every table had smoked salmon, ice sculptures, hors d'oeuvres of all sorts. And they were there hoping to make it into that banquet. And the man said, your name is not in this book and you can't come in. And she said, I was the guest singer at the wedding. She said, I was the honored guest singer at the wedding. He said, ma'am, I don't care who you are or what you have done. Your name is not in this book. And obviously, it was a very high-class affair that they had only prepared enough for those who had sent back the RSVP. They went down the elevator, and she wept on the way home. As her husband said, this was the nicest event we've ever been invited to. It was so embarrassing to be turned away at the door. He said, what happened, darling? She said, well, I was so busy that I failed to fill out the RSVP and send it in. And in tears, she said, I'm sorry we didn't get to attend the greatest invitation that we've ever had. She thought because she was a singer, she was above meeting the prerequisites. She thought maybe political power would help her get through the door. But I want to tell you, many people will be sadly mistaken. It doesn't matter if you know the governor or the president. I want to tell you, you've got to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Come on now. I don't care if your mama and your daddy was a patriarch. You've got to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Come on now. I don't care if you've been to the men's barbecue for 10 years in a row. Come on now. Now, your, your wife and her prayer life are not going to get you in. you got to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, hallelujah. Come on, this is the word of God. I'm preaching about the Lamb's book of life. Are you ready to meet the Lord? I feel him. Come on, I feel the Lord soon approaching. I hear the trumpet sounding in the distance. I want to make sure that you're ready to meet the Lord. No wonder the poet said, when the great factory plants of our cities have turned out their last finished works, when the merchants have sold all their products and sent home the last of the clerks, when the banks have transacted their business and paid out the last dividend, and the judge of the earth calls for a reckoning and asks for a balance, what then? When the church choir has sung its last anthem and the preacher has made his last prayer, when the people have heard their last sermon, and the sound has died out on the air. When the Bible lies closed on the pulpit and the pews are all empty of men. When each one stands facing his record and the great books are opened. What then? What then? That's all that really matters. Come on, I proclaim that every service from here on out. To, 
is an urgent matter that you get right with God. Come on now. Just because the economy's opening up, just because things seem like they're going back to normal, come on now. Don't you get complacent on me. This is the heart of an evangelist. And I want to tell you furthermore what the Bible says. When they cry peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Come on now. That's a word that scares me more than all the signs in Matthew 24. I'm worried that things are going to get back to normal and you're going to miss out on God. I'm worried that you'll get comfortable. Come on and miss out on God. When they cry peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. Come on now. There's somebody that's heard me tonight and you're not sure if your name is in that book. You're going to be searching the newspaper up until the very last moment hoping you're there. You're going to sail across the seven seas only to be turned away at Ellis Island. Come on now. I'm preaching to you. Get right with God. Stir yourself and shake yourself. Come on now. The pastor might not be able to lay hands on you and to shout, but I want to tell you, you ought to have enough conviction in your heart right now that says, you know what? Even if nobody lays hands on me, I'm going to pray until I speak in other tongues. No devil in hell could get me and drag me out the back door. I've got to make it to the altar. I've got to find an altar. I've got to have a touch of God. Somebody ought to run to this altar right now. Somebody ought to run to this altar right now. Come on now. I'm preaching about the Lamb's book of life. Come on and take your neighbor and drag them to the altar. I'm preaching about the Lamb's book of life. Come on and take your neighbor. Say, come on, brother. Come on, sister. I've got to go to the altar. I've got to go to the altar. I've got to go to the altar. from the back. Come on down. We'll give you plenty of room. We're not going to get in your space, but you need to come to the altar right now and lift your hands and close your eyes in the name of Jesus. Come on, everybody in this house. Don't miss this moment. God's calling. God's beckoning. We hope you enjoyed this message. Please reach out to us if you have any questions. We can be found at firstpent.org. That's F-I-R-S-T-P-E-N-T dot org. If you're ever in Pensacola, Florida, we hope you visit us. Be blessed in Jesus' name.